welcome to the first full episode of the Seven Seconds or More podcast. Um, like I said um, last time, when in the intro episode, that this podcast would be dedicated to talking about the NBA and um, kind of reliving all the recent history of the NBA up until this current point, while also talking about the current events and what is going to happen going forward, in my opinion, just from what I'm seeing and from what I'm hearing and from what I'm seeing online and all that discussion. So I would be completely remiss to make an episode um, about the NBA without talking about the NBA Finals that just happened. Um, I'm recording this about one week after the NBA Finals um, finished up, and I just wanted to kind of put my thoughts out there, observations uh, from what I saw from watching those finals, and uh, first thing I gotta say is definitely one of the most entertaining NBA Finals I've seen in a while, Um, and it really makes me wonder how crazy um, that final series would have been if there was more fans in the arena in like a normal uh, playoff setting. Because the atmosphere um, during those playoff games, especially in the finals, is just so crazy. Like the air, you could cut it with a knife. There's so much tension. And you felt that in a dra- in a drama, like dramatic sense, during the bubble games. But not to the point where, you know, if a shot goes in or doesn't go out, you hear the crowd swell up. And even though they did have the pumped-in crowd noise, you, there's just nothing like a, a game winner in a in a finals game in front of a live audience. Um, and so, you know, I don't think the games themselves miss the fans dramatically, but I do think those moments um, kind of miss the fans in terms of atmosphere, for sure. Um but uh, first things first about the finals, though, definitely have to say a big congratulations to the Lakers. They definitely were the best team. The right team won. They deserved to win. They played the way that you would want them to play. They um, did whatever they wanted on offense and controlled the tempo on defense almost every game uh, throughout the bubble. Um you know, once the playoffs started, at the beginning they were a little bit rocky and they had to um, adjust and figure out how to play with the rotation that they now had. But, um, you know, once the playoffs started, LeBron showed why he's one of the two or three best players of all time. And he absolutely can and does turn on a whole new gear for the playoffs and especially for the finals. This was perhaps his most dominant finals besides um besides the one that they won in Cleveland and he really showed that if anybody is going to have a prime that extends into their age 40 season you would bet on that person being LeBron just a ridiculous physical specimen works harder than anybody in the NBA right now and he absolutely deserved to win both the finals and the finals MVP. Um, one thing I wanted to say about his play in particular was that he really stepped it up on defense. Usually if you have a star that's in their um, 30s that is an offensive megastar, 
at this point in their career, they will, you know, hide in the zone and conserve energy or get hidden on a on a weaker player, kind of play uh, free safety a little bit so that they don't have to expend so much of their energy. But LeBron was going toe-to-toe with Jimmy Butler offensively and defensively for most of this series, and he really, really brought it on, on defense. And so I definitely have to say it, it was the most complete effort I've seen from him in a long time on both ends of the, of the floor. He really has figured out how to just get to the rim absolutely whenever he wants to. And when he's doing that, I and hitting the step back threes right in people's faces, I don't know what's the way to stop him. The closest thing that you can come up with for a game plan is either to try to go all in on stopping him and forcing a role player such as Danny Green um, or a KCP or Caruso or one of those guys to actually hit a shot or your other option is to make LeBron beat you on his own and try to take out the other players make him shoot but that that's really just not going to work and it didn't work in this final series because of his ability to hit those long shots. He was shooting about 60% for some of those games is just absolutely unreal. And he, he deserves all the, all the praise he's getting right now. It definitely shouldn't become, um, another, you know, notch in the belt for the Jordan versus LeBron argument, but it absolutely will. And it really is a big point in his favor that he's the first player ever to be the best player on three different, finals winning teams and this one is coming I believe eight years after the first one that he won so it really is a very very impressive um, run that he's doing right now and deserves all the credit on the other player that I wanted to talk about specifically with the Lakers of course is Anthony Davis and I think Anthony Davis is someone who we're never going to be able to evaluate properly for his career. I really believe that. I think in New Orleans, we saw a version of him that had to be kind of a superhero because there was nobody else that was any good on that team. And he had to score more than he would in an ideal situation. He has that you know, guard skills in a big body from playing point guard when he was younger. And that kind of is both what makes him awesome and kind of what takes him out of position to be utterly dominant. He tries to go so much into these moves that other big guys can't do, you know, dribbling and and taking step back shots and, and fallaways. And he's great at it, but you see a lot of times with how small the league is that in certain matchups he would just utterly destroy whoever is is down low if he just stayed there and and kind of roamed and kept getting lobs or working out of the high post and I think he would personally be more dominant doing that but that also is what makes him Anthony Davis Um, I think once he got to the Lakers 
it was kind of went from worst case scenario with New Orleans to best case scenario where he's with another star player and he's able to kind of do what he does best without having to shoulder the entire offensive load and kind of carry everything on defense and be a mismatch on offense. I think that is a best case scenario for him where he's not the one that's creating the offense, but can score within the offense. Um, Again, I think that that's going to make him almost impossible to evaluate properly in a big picture sense. I think his dominance on the defensive end and his mismatch ability on the offensive end makes him one of the most unique and most talented players I've ever seen in my life. But there is also an element of that he's not necessarily a closer down the stretch. Now, he hit a few game winners in the bubbles. He had a couple, and he's had a, some clutch plays in his career for sure. But overall... He is not necessarily someone you want to go down and score on the last possession. He can. He's good at it. But his mentality has never been that alpha, I'm going to destroy the other team all on my own, except for some certain occasions where he absolutely just had to do that. So that's why I think that in a New Orleans, where he was the only good player on his team, he had to do that, even though that wasn't his personality type. And I'm sure that strengthened a lot of his ability to be a fighter and uh, competitive drive for being in his best case scenario now, where he's the most talented current player on the team and he can utterly destroy everybody on defense and run everywhere and block shots and get steals and alter shots. But he doesn't have to be that offensive creator or that closer because LeBron is there. And I think that because he was forced to do more than he should have in New Orleans, and now he's not asked to do as much as a normal superstar would be in L.A., that we are not really going to be able to see what he truly can and can't do. We're only seeing what he's asked to do or had to do. And, um, you know, kudos to him, though, for getting in the absolute best case scenario for his career and taking advantage of it, taking it by the reins. Um, I kind of think of him, if I had to do a player comparison, as a player, he's similar to, like, what would be today's version, some kind of hybrid between, like, Wilt Chamberlain and Kevin Garnett in terms of talent. But with guard skills, like I don't even know who to say that that would be because he's the first person to put all of that in the same package. Defensively, he is uh, a lot like like Garnett, but even more uh, athletic, even more switchable. And but as like a within his role on his team, I think he's like the best case scenario for someone like. Paul George, where he's like the absolute richest man's rich man version of the second best player on a team. He's can always be the most talented player on this team, and nine times out of ten, he probably will be, but you do need someone that can provide more of an offensive creating punch 
than he can provide. Um, so again, I think that's why the Lakers are a perfect scenario for him. He should absolutely re-sign with them uh, for now and probably for the rest of his career. He could be the next uh, face of the Lakers once LeBron is retired. And who knows, by then maybe he will have developed such an offensive game where he can be the de facto, or not even de facto, but just definitive best player on that team offensively and defensively. Um, And so, you know, kudos to him for the best situation of his career. Congratulations. Absolutely earned it. He's the best defensive player in the league right now. Um, I know Giannis Antetokounmpo won the defensive player of the year award this year, but I truly think Davis is the best defensive player in the NBA right now and probably has been for the last five years. Um, I wanted to talk also a little bit about the Lakers role players and what role that they played in this finals win. Uh, First off, I want to get it out of the way that you can't blame Danny Green solely for the fact that this uh, series went to a game six. And I'm really glad that the last game, even though I was going for the heat myself, was a blowout. So that way... It, we didn't have to see that Danny Green miss and that Morris uh, turnover for the rest of our lives. That would have been really, really annoying, really frustrating. Um, but I think that in that particular play, you know, LeBron got triple teamed, made the right pass. It was a little off target because of the angle that he had to pass from and Danny Green was not able to catch it in rhythm. I know three-point shooting Wide open, especially, is what he's asked to do. But in a moment that big, with a pass that wasn't directly in the rhythm of his shot, no, that's not going to be a guaranteed make. But he has absolutely come up huge in the finals before. It came up pretty big last year in a couple spots in Toronto. Had that series with the Spurs when they won, where he was unbelievable. So this is not a guy who's not a proven performer. Everybody knows the rap on Danny Green. He's going to be a good defender. He's going to work really hard. And he's going to be a really, really streaky three-point shooter. Um, So, you know, that's why they had him out there. He was either going to make it or he wasn't. And most of the time he does make those. And, you know, he didn't that time. But thank goodness for them. They ended up winning anyway. And it didn't matter. And... Um, you know, Danny Green still absolutely earned his place on this team. He's a great player and for the most part did a really good job. Um, the other role players that did really well this series, though, um, especially Contavious Caldwell-Pope, really put together a great series, especially those last two games, which was kind of making everything and um, playing great defense, keeping the ball moving. Like He wasn't just letting it stick and taking stupid shots. Um, that weren't within the offense. Um, he really played his role to perfection, and that's what you want with players like LeBron and Anthony Davis um, scoring 60 points a game. You need those other guys to hit their open threes and play hard defense and keep the ball moving, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, another guy that you could say that about um, is Alex Caruso. did a great job playing all the right passing lanes and hard defense and coming up with offensive rebounds and uh, steals and all kinds of energy plays. He's exactly the kind of um, guard 
that needs to be with the Lakers, uh, kind of like KCP, but more on the energy side than the scoring side because he doesn't demand the ball, doesn't demand attention, but always makes his possessions, makes the most out of his possessions. And so he is someone that really stepped up, started in that last game, and, and really was able to help set the tone from a defensive and energy standpoint. Really, really good job. Uh, Rondo, of course, uh, 10 years removed from probably his most dominant finals or playoffs performance several years ago, and he really brought it this series. He's showed why he's still a good NBA player, and he's ended up in a lot of situations in his career, uh, starting with Dallas and going into Sacramento and also with New Orleans, where you know, if the situation wasn't going exactly the way he wanted, he was such a cancer for the situation because he was used to winning and used to success and he's got such a such a high basketball IQ that if things weren't going well, it just, it just frustrated him. He got so angry and wanted things to be going better and couldn't understand why the other younger players didn't bring it to the same level. But now that he's with... LeBron James with Anthony Davis with a defensive-minded team that needed a guard that would hit his open threes, which he absolutely did this series, play hard defense, get offensive rebounds, and set his team up for success with smart basketball plays. He filled that role to perfection. He brought the competitiveness that they needed and someone that wasn't, that had been there before. I think other than LeBron, really, most of and uh, Danny Green, most of that team had the potential, at least, to kind of go deer in the headlights if a big moment or a big game showed up. But Rondo um, did a great job of being that guy who wasn't the best player on the team but had been there before and come up in a big way and showed absolutely no fear, all the fight in the world, and I think... A lot of him doing that can be attributed to the other role players on this team going out there without the fear and with the fight because they saw their other guys in that same position doing so. Um, You know, some of their other players that played not as well but were out there and, and, and fighting is, you know, guys like Dwight Howard. I think... He absolutely did show this year and this playoffs, especially against the Nuggets, why he's still in the NBA. But his role has just transitioned so much from defensive superstar, can catch any lob and just destroy everybody, but tries too many dumb things on the block that he was in Orlando. And then now he's like... He's JaVale McGee, but walks around like he's on steroids. So a lot of matchups don't fit for what he's doing because he doesn't space the floor on a consistent basis, but he has to be in the situation that he was this year. But if he's in that situation, he'll do really well. I heard there was some interest uh, the other day online from the Warriors and possibly signing Dwight, and I think 
that that is exactly the kind of situation that he should pursue. Teams like the Lakers or the Warriors, where they have so much offensive uh, creating and especially floor spacing, where they can afford to just have him roaming in that dunk spot at the five, and that's all he has to do is catch lobs and set screens and um, you know move the ball back out if he gets it in a bad spot. I think those teams afford him that unique opportunity and not a lot of other teams do. But if he sticks within those situations that will highlight what he's good at, he absolutely can still play at least a couple more years in the NBA, bringing that energy and um, kind of just being that guy that, that just ticks off the best players, the best big players on the other team, and kind of an instigator, which is really weird that that's what Dwight Howard's career has turned into, but that's who he is now. But it is a role I think he can play well for at least a couple more years. Um, last thing I wanted to say about the Lakers is, my goodness, what an unbelievable defensive performance, and especially a clinic in that last game. In the playoffs as a whole, but especially in the finals, they really just did not ever let teams shoot the shots that they wanted. They really got in your face. They weren't playing scared. They weren't almost never playing from behind. And that defense allowed them to, even when they did get behind, to not get behind on like a run, like a 20-point run or something that they couldn't come back from. Their defense always kept it interesting enough that they could make enough shots to get themselves back into it. They they never put themselves in position to get blown out. And they really, really brought it. And uh, a lot of credit goes to uh, both uh, Frank Vogel for that defensive scheme and really um, teaching them to play from a defense-first mentality, uh, and also to LeBron and Anthony Davis for setting the examples, the two most gifted offensive players on their team, but both went out and showed what they could do defensively first, and if you're a role player on that team, how are you going to say, like, no, I'm not going to play defense, just give me my shots, when your two best players, who one of them who's been there and done that several times, and the other who's clearly the most talented player in most of the league outside of his own teammate, then you, if they're doing it, you have to do it. And so I think they really did a great job setting that tone and kind of making it the Lakers identity. And that's what that team will be remembered for uh, years from now. Um, I also now, of course, wanted to talk about the heat, the heat or who I wanted uh, to win this series, they didn't, but they really put up an unbelievable fight, and I think they have a really bright future um, going forward. And uh, first player to obviously talk about in that series is Jimmy Butler. What an unbelievable uh, performance, uh, two-way performance the whole way down. Really went toe-to-toe with LeBron, and especially in that in that game five, that really went all the way down to the wire and they it, that those games and how Jimmy was able to carry them defensively guarding LeBron and going right at him and he couldn't do it every time and LeBron really did put up his numbers but he made it hard for him 
and he expended so much energy doing doing that and then going down and being the only person that could really create a shot for either himself or someone else every time down the floor the lakers knew what was happening and he was still able to do it and man he showed what kind of fight and what kind of unbelievable tenacity and competitiveness he really has and i think he's vaulted himself into that top 10 category for even casual nba fans now i think a lot of players knew that that's kind of his range um already and a lot of fans knew that but now the casual fans know because he's it the finals and the playoffs illuminate and put a magnifying glass on exactly what player you are when things get hard and jimmy butler showed that when things get hard he's got the stones to go out there and do exactly what he's paid to do and what he's supposed to do and lead his team to the victory and they you know they didn't wind up with it this time but he did absolutely everything he could to make that happen and they just didn't have enough around him but he's absolutely a top 10 player when the lights get brighter he's there for it he will be remembered going forward for that finals performance and the heat are really really lucky that they have him really glad that they have him and i can't remember a free agent team pairing that just made so much sense from a culture and personality standpoint and even a personnel standpoint. That's exactly the kind of guy they needed and the kind of personality they needed to lead that team. And Jimmy Butler was, he was a heat player. He always was deep down. And now that he's actually in Miami and showing what he's capable of, um, I'm really, really glad for him that the casual fan notices now what an unbelievable player he is and how lucky the NBA is to have guys like Jimmy Butler in it. I also want to talk about Duncan Robinson, who really only had the one game that went completely off, but all season and all playoffs, he was such a threat uh, from running around screens and being a catch-and-shoot, a three-point shooter at a ridiculous clip, about 46%, I believe. Um, And he reminds me so much of J.J. Redick. And I think he's going to be this generation's um, J.J. Redick, where he's not the most consistently great defensive player, but he can play within the scheme. He's really, really smart and can um, put himself in the right position a lot of times, even though he won't have the physical advantage over the other player. And on the other end, he'll run around all over the place and run uh, over screens and shoot those catch-and-shoot threes at such a high percentage that you have to respect him like he's a much more prolific uh, you know, points-per-game scorer than he actually is because those points come in bunches. And he plays a lot like um, Kyle Korver as well, but physically and his role within the offense specifically just reminds me so much of J.J. Redick, who's one of my all-time favorite players. And uh, I think, and I know that they're friends. They, he goes on, on J.J. Redick's uh, podcast, Old Man in the Three, um, semi-regularly and talks about things and they're good friends. And that is absolutely the person and the example that he should continue to follow 
for his career trajectory. I think he's going to be a coveted player well into his 30s if he keeps up and doesn't get hurt. And he he really showed how important he is and how teams need guys like him to really take them over the top because you have to respect them and it opens up so much for everyone else. Um, also wanted to talk about their other three-point shooter um, young guy is uh, Tyler Hero, who throughout the season and through uh, the first three rounds really showed that he has such potential to absolutely break out offensively and just destroy a team going off for a a crazy quarter or game of scoring. But he really just did not have it in this final series. Um, In my personal opinion, he looked like he was playing really nervous and really scared out there. And that really comes from just inexperience and age. And, you know, I'm not saying I would have done any better. I probably in, in the finals would have reacted the same way. Um, but he really just didn't have it this series. It seemed like uh, a lot of his shots were rushed or not coming within the flow of the offense. Some of them uh, were air balls. Like it was just a disastrous series for him. But I think he is the kind of player and has the kind of mentality that I was never for one second worried about him in a big picture sense because of this series. He's the kind of player that watches the tape of a series like this and figures out what he did wrong and how to be better and doesn't make those mistakes a second time. I never got the sense that this is who he is or that this series is going to ruin his confidence or anything like that at all. Um, I think it was just an inexperience first time on, on this big a stage kind of set uh, setting and just kind of a worst case scenario, especially with the Lakers being such a good defensive team and them not having their best offensive creator in Dragic, who I'm going to talk about in just a minute. And uh, I think it was just too much too soon. And he going forward is going to be an unbelievable player, probably the best scorer on his team at some point in the future, possibly even near future. So he's got a big, bright future ahead of him, although it wasn't this finals run. Um, And then the last thing I want to talk about is the two um, injured guys from the Heat this series um, with Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic. Um, Adebayo I had not seen that much of. I hadn't gotten to see too many Heat games before the playoffs um, this year, but he really... Showed in the first few rounds, especially in the Celtics round in the conference finals, how dominant he can be as a defensive player and on offense, how he can he can shoot from the mid-range and he can create for others. He's a great passer and he can finish um, lob attempts up there. And he looked so, I wouldn't say different, but limited when he came back, he didn't look 100% at all, maybe about 75 to 80% in my opinion. And he really brought it from a competitiveness standpoint and from a fighting standpoint, but he just didn't fully have his full arsenal and it showed in those last uh, few games in the finals. Um, the other guy, Dragic, who was hurt going into the final series was Miami's best scorer in the playoffs at over 20 points per game. And he was also their best 
offensive creator. He could create shots for other people. He could drain threes in people's face. He was a really, really scrappy fighter. Kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Manu Ginobili, but not as um, not with as many like Euro steps and stuff like that. Um, but I've been a big, big fan of him and his game ever since he was a backup um, with the Phoenix Suns in those like 2010-ish uh, years. Uh, he was Steve Nash's backup, and Steve Nash and those Phoenix Suns teams are my favorite teams of all time, and that's what this podcast is is named after. And uh, I've been a big fan of Dragic for, for several years, and I was really glad to see the casual fan finally seeing, if only because he wasn't there, how valuable he was to his team. And I think a healthy Bam and a healthy Dragic could have really made this a series. Um, again, I think with just how dominant the Lakers played, it's really hard to say that the right team didn't win. I think the right team did win, but I would have given you know my left arm to have seen what a full-strength Heat would have looked like against this team since the Heat without their best offensive creator and the biggest threat to what the Lakers were not good at and their best rim runner limited, they made it so close and so such a hard fight anyway outside of that game six. I really would have loved to see uh, how that would have gone and, uh, you know, if nothing else, just to watch it play out because um, I'm a basketball fan. I wanted to see it. But um, the series that we got anyway was still unbelievable. And I was really, really glad to be able to see um, basically all of it. And, uh, you know, what an awesome series. The bubble was definitely a success. They were able to go out there and show why they still wanted to play and get their their social justice messages out there as well. I think it they did a good job of making it um, there and present. Um, but also wasn't, um, you know, overall distracting from the product where it was, it wasn't a conflict of interest is what I'm saying. It was, it was really well, well done in my opinion. And the players did a great job voicing uh, their opinions. And, uh, you know, as a fan, I'm personally glad that they continued playing and that we have a conclusion to the season now after it was interrupted by COVID uh, all those months ago. And, um, you know, now I want to talk a little bit about which players were impacted by the bubble in terms of like their standing and their stock around the league. And I'm going to talk about a few players that are winners, you could say, of the bubble. Players that are trending up in both their actual basketball value, value to their team and uh, public perception. And also, um, you know, just players that really showed out and did what they came to do in the bubble. Um, trending down, I'm also going to talk about players that you could say were losers of the bubble experience, and then a couple of players that I would consider to be stagnant. And not necessarily that they their opinion didn't move at all. I think it just the people that thought of them more positively and the people that thought of them more negatively because of the bubble, there's so many on both sides that it kind of evens out overall. And I would consider them to be stagnant in a public opinion, um, you know, setting overall. 
Um, but so, yeah, first of all, let's talk about the players that were impacted by the bubble. Let's talk about some winners of the bubble. First winner of the bubble, of course, is LeBron James. Went down there in his age um, 36 season in his 17th year in the NBA and went down and won the finals MVP, won his fourth title, his um, title with a third team best player on it. And, you know, we've already obviously talked about all his accomplishments in this series, but uh, man, he's showing why he's one of the best players of all time and why he's still going to be able to do this for a good while longer. And, um, yeah, you can't say anyone came away from the bubble experience winning more than LeBron James because even at his age, he has shown that he doesn't care, um, you know, what you think, but we have had too many years of talking about who the best player in the NBA is. You know, is it Durant? Is it Curry? Is it Giannis? Is it Kawhi? And LeBron really put the exclamation point on it saying, no, it's still me. And I think that's really what he set out to do uh, from a personal standpoint. Of course, his main goal was to win a championship, but I think that him being the best player in the NBA and proving that he still was the best player in the NBA was going to be a product of them winning the championship if he did it in a dominant fashion and he absolutely did and uh congrats to lebron but yeah he has definitely shown that he's the biggest winner of the bubble experience and the second biggest winner of the bubble experience i would definitely say is jimmy butler and you know we talked about him a little bit as well um when talking about the heat players um and how they performed in the finals this year but he again showed why he is a top 10 player why he's the type of player that you absolutely can build a team around but you have to match up what he brings from a intensity and competitiveness standpoint with a culture that is able to support that and uh, a good comparison for him in my opinion is when you think about the Kobe Bryant teams between Shaq and Pau Gasol, where he had a couple of years there where the Lakers were absolutely horrible. And he was great, but the Lakers as a whole were really, really bad because he had such a mentality of, I want to go down there and absolutely kill the opposition, but didn't have the players on his team to do that or the personality types that wanted that. And it reminds me a lot of Jimmy Butler in the post-Derrick Rose Bulls or Jimmy Butler in Minnesota, or even Jimmy Butler in Philadelphia last year, where he was such a fighter, such a competitive guy, almost uh, same personality that we saw a lot of times with Michael Jordan in the Last Dance documentaries over the summer, but didn't have teammates or a culture or an organization having a structure that backed up that fight and that mentality. But now in Miami... He absolutely has that. That's what the Heat culture has always been about. And Pat Riley just kind of brings this crazy godfather um, mentality to that team that they're going to treat it like a military. And that's exactly where Jimmy Butler wants to be. And that's where he is. And it's shown to everybody that's a fan of the NBA why it is such a success and why he is such a good fit for them. So congrats again to Jimmy Butler 
trending up one of the biggest winners of the bubble, and everybody is now realizing how good he is. Um, the third winner of the bubble, and my personal favorite player in the league right now, is Luka Doncic. And I know they didn't make it out of the first round, but they probably had the worst matchup that they could have possibly drawn in the first round, playing the Clippers. And he had his sidekick hurt, Kristaps um, Porzingis, and he really was the only other offensive player besides Luka that could go out there and create his own shot or another shot for someone else on a consistent basis and at a high level. And so if you think about what he did, uh, averaging just about a 30-point triple-double against the best defenders in the league, and I know the Clippers really um, you know, wet the bed and showed why they were kind of a pretender uh, in some ways, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but not a matchup that the Mavericks were supposed to win with only one true offensive creator, and he was hobbled on one leg for that matter. And Luca was constantly taking hard shots from uh, people, especially Morris taking the dirty shots on him. And he still had such an unbelievable transcendent playoff series, including that uh, game winner that he hit um, with that 40 point triple double, the three point shot to win the game at the buzzer. And I actually have a plaque of that shot commemorating um that that my girlfriend got me and um unbelievable i think he is going to be the best player in the nba at some point in the near future and we may be there sooner than later i think he's a top three player right now the only players that you could conceivably put above him in my opinion is lebron and possibly possibly onto the kumpo but I may have to rethink that and put Davis up there. I'm not sure. Um, but Luca is such a ridiculously gifted uh, player. He showed it all season on offense why he is the best shot creator in the NBA. His size and his rebounding and his change of pace ability make it so hard for anyone to defend him. And him being such a matchup problem, being a 6'8 and 230 as basically their point guard allows them to put another big wing out there. And he showed in the bubble why he actually has some good defense. And he didn't play a lot of good defense over the season, but in the playoffs he did. And that was really encouraging to see that he's not just going to be an offensive wizard who can't stay in front of anybody. He's going to be really, really good. Um, Obviously the white guy comparisons... Uh, always put him as the next Larry Bird, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, But I think he plays a lot like James Harden also, but he has this ability to kind of galvanize his team. And there's something about Harden, and I was a fan of his in Oklahoma City, but where he's just kind of aloof and he's kind of doing his own thing and he's just really quiet and, I don't know, he's just kind of an enigma. And his teammates play off of him really well, but they don't necessarily play for him. But Luca is just one of the boys out there, and you can see it. He's out there fighting, and his teammates absolutely love him. And even though any possession that he doesn't touch the ball, 
is a bad possession because he's so good. His teammates show no signs of resenting him for that because he's out there um, going out of his way to find them the cleanest shots that they've ever gotten in their in their lives. And uh, you know, slight little tangent on the on the Mavericks, but I think that they are going to really spend big in free agency or in uh, be taking on salaries. Like I saw a report the other day. Um, online, how they're going to be willing to take on big salaries to get a third star player to play with him and Porzingis. And I really think that they would be well served to do so. Uh, even just someone that is great on the wings as a defender and shooter, but can still provide that fight. And uh, I, I think they're going to be able to do that. And now is the time to stack a great team because he's already good now. You don't have to wait for his prime or wait for someone else's prime to run out. They showed this year as a seventh seed in a loaded Western Conference that they were unbelievable. If they were in the East, I truly think they would have been like the four or five seed. They um, you know, were an unbelievable team all year, especially when you consider they were basically one superstar, one star, and all role players that needed someone else to create a shot for them, um, they really are going to be something special once they get the right pieces around Luka. Since with this supporting cast, you could argue that it's crazy that they made the playoffs at all. So, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable job. He's going to be one of the best players in the league. I think the best player at some point and at some point soon. I've gotten to see him live. Uh, once I uh, watched him go play a game against the Spurs and he had a great game uh, there, but I can't wait to go see him play many more times uh, in the future. Um, the next winner of the bubble is actually going to be a three-parter. wanted to highlight all of them because they play, they're so interconnected, play on the same team, and they're going to have a bright future going forward. And that is Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, and to a lesser extent, Michael Porter Jr. I think uh, Nikola Jokic continued to show why he is so, so special, and he doesn't look like he would be a crazy good basketball player, and he doesn't look like he would be um, just a superstar, but he absolutely is. He can make the best passes that I've seen from anybody um, at the center position. He's got great vision. He can do unbelievable passes that um, not a lot of other people can because he can see over the defense and he throws about one um, Aaron Rodgers Hail Mary down the court per game and a perfect football pass. He's, he's great. And he showed that defensively he's not a complete slouch either. He um, was over there blocking shots and getting steals and getting in the way and I know that to a certain extent he kind of wilted against the Lakers and wasn't able to bring it the whole time. But in my opinion, I think a lot of that was just due to running out of gas. They went to a Game 7, um, two series in a row, and had to play against uh, Davis and Dwight Howard just physically beating him up down there in that uh, Lakers series. So I don't think that he didn't want the moment or didn't want the pressure. I think he simply ran out of gas. He's not the best conditioned uh, athlete in the world to begin with, but um, I think that he really showed their future is going to be great as long as he is a centerpiece 
for that team. Um, also, Jamal Murray showed why he is going to be so good going forward. Um, he, I wondered truly before this bubble if he w- had kind of tapped out as a kind of like a not crazy J.R. Smith, um, where he's like a really inefficient volume scorer who has all the talent in the world to be more than that, but kind of never puts it together as more than just a really good, but not good enough second piece. But I and anybody that would be counted as a doubter of his was absolutely wrong about that. And he showed that he can bring his game to new heights in the bubble and went toe to toe with Donovan Mitchell, who's another one of our winners we'll talk about in a little bit, and in round one, and he just kept rattling off these like 50-point games and unbelievable scoring both from outside, but also has shown that he's maybe one of the best finishers inside, and he is a good passer. He doesn't do as much of it as you would think a point guard would, but that's mainly due to playing with Nikola Jokic and him being the best passer on the team. He doesn't get a lot of looks to make good passes, but he is a good passer. He's a very, very clutch scorer and a great competitor. And I think he's really just matured a lot. And I think a lot of what he was doing early on, I don't know if it was the yips or if he just wasn't ready or was still finding his NBA legs, but I think he found them in the bubble and he's going to be a star for a long time. I think he's going to be probably a 20, he could be probably a 25 point per game scorer pretty soon. And, um, he showed that him and Jokic in that two man game is absolutely what the nuggets need to keep doing to stay competitive. As long as they put the right pieces around them, they're going to be good for a long time. And, um, that brings me to our third parter of the winners on the nuggets And that's uh, Michael Porter Jr. I think a lot of times in the bubble, he showed that he, um, you know, is is young and is a rookie and didn't have the best um, defensive tendencies. But I think he tries hard on that end. He's crazy athletic, and I've never seen someone um, other than like, um, you know, KD or Dirk. um, But just from like a non, this guy is going to be definitely a superstar. Uh, point of view. I've never seen someone of his size just take such ridiculously beautiful three-point shots, and they always look like they're going in when he shoots it. He's got such a pure shot from that size. He He's basically a seven-footer. I think he's 6'10", but he's a small forward, and he and has a small forward's body. He's just huge, and so I think he's exactly the right kind of player that you want around Jokic and Murray where he doesn't need the ball in his hands a lot but he can create for himself because you don't want too much riding on those two players and he can hit his open threes he can hit contested threes and he can rebound and he can pass and he's young enough absolutely he's I mean he's the youngest out of those three but he's good enough already to go forward with that team he's not someone in my opinion that you have to trade to get a third star with them. I think he is that third star that you would trade for. He's just already on the team and you just have to play him and you have to develop him. And he's proven that you have to play him. He's, I think I love guys like Will Barton and, um, and, uh, Tory Craig. But I think if you're not playing 
Porter just because of defense, um, then you're making a mistake because he's got to go out there and learn to um, play through his mistakes, and that's the only way he's going to get better. He already is what he is right now on offense, but he needs to go out there and learn how to play more within the offense, learn how to play defense because you know they're going to get the value of his shot making and his shooting um, and they're only going to get that value if he's on the on the floor. And he's ready to provide that right now, so I think they need to have him out there. Um, I think the Nuggets have a very bright future going forward with those three, and I really hope they don't screw it up because I love the team. Um, the last two um, winners of the bubble, and I'm going to kind of wrap this up so I can talk about the losers and the stagnants, um, but kind of in the same uh, category is uh, Donovan Mitchell and Damian Lillard. And both of them had a shorter bubble experience, but showed that they could put their team on their back and take their game up to a completely new level. And uh, Damian Lillard, obviously more so. He's um, he's definitely a top 10 player. And I'll have to do a player ranking here pretty soon um, in one of the upcoming episodes so that I don't say that like 20 different guys are top 10 players. But Damian Lillard is absolutely a top 10 player. Donovan Mitchell... Uh, probably you know top twenty or so, but he they both showed that they could carry their team to new heights, and they simply didn't have enough around them or were too far behind the eight ball to advance far in in this bubble experience. But they both laid everything and left everything on the court, and so their losses are not their faults and. It was plain to see for anybody that was watching that they didn't wilt from the moment. They brought everything they had. It just wasn't enough in these particular uh, scenarios. But people are definitely going to be high on Donovan Mitchell and Damian Lillard uh, going forward. I've already seen some arguments about Donovan Mitchell as the new Dwayne Wade. And I've, I've always thought that there was a lot of comparisons uh, to be made in their games. And uh, Damian Lillard is now better than Steph Curry. I don't believe that one personally, but I think he's very close. And they're, they're just different players. Um, you know, Dame is more explosive um, as a dunker and as a scorer, um, per se, but Steph is such a ridiculous three-point shooter, and he can be a ridiculous three-point shooter in more ways than Damian Lillard can, where he's a catch-and-shoot, he's a um, give-and-go He's a pull-up shooter. He's off the dribble. He's everything. And so, um, you know, I think they're different players. I think Steph is still is still better, assuming he comes back uh, healthy. But they both are trending upward and showed why they are the players that they are in the bubble. Um, so now, trending down, we're going to talk about a few losers of the bubble. And the most obvious loser of the bubble, of course, is Pandemic P himself, uh, Paul George, and I really liked Paul George before his injury uh, with the Pacers. Um, I think that was probably a product of just hating the Miami Heat with the um, LeBron and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade teams, but I have really come to despise watching Paul George play basketball in the last uh, couple of years. I think his effortlessness out there, he just glides on the court reminds me so much of Tracy McGrady offensively. He was one of my favorite players ever, but when it push comes to shove, we have, I think like eight straight 
years in the playoffs where Paul George has disappeared in big games or hasn't brought it or has just simply choked. And um, I like watching him play from a viewing standpoint. It's aesthetically pleasing, but it's really frustrating because you you hate to see someone that has such talent go out there and just completely wet the bed. Um, but from another standpoint, I kind of like seeing it because I despise watching uh, Paul George succeed because I don't like him. He's cocky. Uh, he's really arrogant. And, um, you know, he <laughs> made all those statements of talking trash with Damian Lillard and then completely, um, you know, was terrible against um, Denver. And he even had a couple of no-show games against the Mavericks. And uh, he's exactly the kind of player that should have destroyed the Mavericks. And I think a lot of the Clippers' problems were due to him just not being able to read the room. It was just so tone-deaf to what was going on. Um, doesn't look like he fit in with that team at all. Just looked like he thought he was going to cruise in as a mercenary uh, who was... he? I think he really considered himself to be on the same level as Kawhi Leonard and go out there and um, just be a superstar. And his team was going to love him. And then it didn't play out that way. And then his team was visibly frustrated with him. And, uh, you know, here are the reports of him after the games uh, trying to rally the team and trying to be a leader and stuff. But leadership is not something that you can do, you can pick your spots at. I think his team knows that he's a super, super talented player, but vocally and, you know, mentality-wise, he plays like he's just another one of the role players on the team. And he knows that he's good, but you can't just say, I'm not going to be a leader with the little things throughout the whole year. And I'm not going to really talk to anybody or form relationships on this team. And I'm not saying he didn't have good relationships with anyone on the team. I don't know that. But you could just watch it that he wasn't one of the guys. There wasn't one of the bros on the team. And you can't go out there and make no effort to be one of those guys and... You know, when the going gets tough, say like, hey, man, where were you when you didn't bring it yourself? And I think his team saw right through that. If he was someone like LeBron that was absolutely laying everything on the line or Damian Lillard every time down the floor and was doing everything for his guys, then they would fight for him. And they would say, yeah, that's the guy I want to rally behind. But he never did any of that. Just kind of got his own when he wanted to and um, disappeared, and he didn't bring it at all. And when he tries to say, yeah, let's rally around me and come back next year, like, I'll bring it home for us, like, we got to do this as a team, his teammates, understandably, were like, shut up. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. And I would have felt the same way about it. And everybody's had that coworker that doesn't do their part. And then when the going gets tough, they're like, come on, guys, let's do it. And you're like dude, like, what's your problem? Like, you didn't bring it yourself. You're why we're here. And um, so I can totally relate to that. And I think his stock is going to be trending down um, probably from here on out. I think not to say that he can't put together a better season than he has before, but he has crossed into that territory where regular seasons do not matter for the perception of, of him throughout the league to fans. I think he is one of those players 
like James Harden, who I'll talk about next, that has crossed into that territory where playoff success is the only barometer that they can be measured by. And if they don't match up or meet that success in the playoffs, then it doesn't matter what they do in the regular season. No one is going to care. And I don't care either. Uh, You can talk all you want to um, during the season or even during the playoffs at other players, but if you're not going to bring it, then you don't deserve to have any credibility. Um, So that's where Paul George's stock is going. I went on a little bit of a rant there, but it's uh, well-deserved for Pandemic P. Uh, Can't stand him. And next guy we have, also can't stand him, um, now is James Harden. And I think that James Harden's teammates don't despise him, but I think they resent him. And uh, that's just from a viewer standpoint. I don't know what goes on in the locker room. He probably is a fun guy. But you can see how it's such a difference of like Harden and Westbrook and the rest of the team. And uh, they create all the shots, but they also aren't just, you know, getting in there, being uh, you know, friends with everybody. It's just really, um, I don't know, it's really bizarre to watch. I think this shows another example, uh, kind of like Paul George, or when the going gets tough, James Harden wanted nothing to do with that big moment, didn't want to shoot the ball and uh, against the um, the Oklahoma City uh, series in particular where um, Westbrook shot them out of the game there at the end uh, has so much more to do with who James Harden is than who Westbrook is. I think a lot of people um, were out there saying like, oh, like Westbrook just takes dumb shots and bricks everything. And yeah, that's true. And we're going to talk about that. But if you're James Harden, who is controlling a historic amount of of his team's offense and putting together such a ridiculous offensive machine um, like production, then you have to go down there and score, or you have to at least give your team the best shot to win with the ball in your hands. And you got to be that Kobe or Allen Iverson on your team and say, where I don't care what the situation is, but since it's do or die, we are going to do or die with the ball in my hands. And he just it isn't that guy. And when the when the pressure mounts and the going gets tough, um, he kind of shrinks away and just tries to play within the offense. But if you think about it, he is the offense. So you can't play within the offense to a team of players that has been deferring to you for an entire season. And all of a sudden now you're trying to pass and they're like, oh, what? I have the ball. And then they're going to shoot cold. And they're gonna miss, and so it's no wonder why the why the Rockets have been um, a playoff disaster for the last uh, several years uh, in tough moments. But um, I think that we're gonna see some big changes with Houston going forward because of Harden and because of uh, Westbrook, who I'll just very briefly say, um, you know, I think he's still a really good player, but he can't shoot, and. He, at this point in his career, never will be able to shoot consistently. But if he can get downhill and just kind of be a cutter and score off of Harden, then he can still be a really good and really effective player for a long time. But um, I think the days where he is a one-man offense are over, not necessarily due to a diminished skill level, but Oklahoma City was the only team that would allow him to play that way. And he 
in Houston or whether he goes somewhere else to team up with someone else won't be in that position at any other point in his career, I don't think. Uh, if that does happen, that'll be a big surprise to me. But um, I think those days of the Westbrook and his friends show are are over with. And just due to that alone, uh, his stock is, is trending down. But I think there will be big changes in Houston. Mike D'Antoni is already out. Uh, Daryl Morey is out. So with the new general manager and a new head coach and possibly some trades... I, I'm very interested to see how this Houston thing plays out. I'm not a fan of theirs. Um, I was last a fan of theirs uh, back when Tracy McGrady and Yao Ming were playing, um, but I am very interested to see how it will play out. Um, the last couple of losers, the trending down players that I wanted to discuss uh, quickly is Pascal Siakam. Uh, first of all, I was a big, big fan of Pascal Siakam. Uh, still am a fan of his. I think he's uh, he's got one of the best nicknames in the NBA with Spicy P. Um, I think he's really fun to watch. He's a great example of how you can be not necessarily a star, but fill out you know second or third best player on your team, role player, and max out your potential there. And I think he has shown that he's an incredibly switchable defensive player and one of the best complementary players in the NBA. Um, His stock is trending down only because he didn't have the luxury of being a complementary player this year. He was kind of thrown into, you are our number one option now um, with Toronto this year because of Kawhi leaving. And I think that that is not a role that is conducive to success for him. And he kind of wilted from the moment this year in the playoffs and was honestly terrible. But that is not, in my opinion, a condemnation on his game or his fault. I think he was put in a position that he was not very well suited to do. Um, I think, you know, we've seen this before with other players where I'm a big fan of Rudy Gay, for example, as a great complimentary player who's athletic as anybody in the NBA or was at his peak and provides good but not great at almost every attribute of the game. And he looks like a star, but he's just not that guy. If you ask him to go down there and score four buckets in a row in crunch time, he's probably not going to do it because that's just not who he is. He's a complimentary player at heart with a superstar's body and skill set, and that's who um, who Pascal Siakam is. That's who I think Paul George is. But the difference is that Siakam never said, like, you know, I'm the best player on this team. I'm going to carry this team, or acting like he's all that. He just had to play that role. Um, Paul George, for example, you know, acts like he is all that, doesn't bring it when it matters. So that that is where I think that difference lies. Um, The last uh, loser trending down that I wanted to talk about is the whole Sixers team um, as a whole. Um, I kind of like and don't like their Doc Rivers hiring. I think they absolutely had to get rid of Brett Brown. I don't think he's a bad coach, but he, his time ran out with the Sixers. I think he lost that locker room. I don't think they were playing for him any longer. And you need to have a change when that happens. And I'm 
glad for them that they did that, um, that they finally made the change. I think it was a year too late, but there is something to be said for the fact that their biggest problem is that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid just are not complementary of each other in a basketball sense. They don't play off of each other well. They don't highlight each other's strengths. They kind of bring down each other's weaknesses, and they're better when the other isn't on the court. That being said, from a front office standpoint, they are both so talented that it's hard to get rid of either one without saying, well, let's give this another shot with someone else. So I understand what they're doing. But Doc Rivers is not someone that has necessarily had a great track record of making players that aren't good playing together play better together. Um, he had has the one title with Boston, but I think that has more to do with the pieces that they got um, were complementary of each other. Uh, Kevin Garnett is exactly the kind of player that Boston needed. He's He was a great um, player to play off of Paul Pierce because Paul Pierce could create the offense in the middle and uh, Kevin Garnett could finish plays and get the defense covered almost all on his own. And Ray Allen fit into that well because he could run off screens and shoot threes and be a decoy out there when he wasn't scoring. And so those pieces fit together basketball-wise. Doc Rivers did make that happen, but they did win with him. I think he's a great motivator. I think he's one of the better, most respected coaches in the NBA. But his work with um, you know, Paul, uh, Chris Paul and um, Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan, while they did some good stuff over there and with his current versions of the Clippers teams, they were always competitive. And I think the Sixers will continue to be competitive, but there was always grumblings of these players don't get along or these players want, uh, you know, the grass is greener on the other side uh, kind of situations. And so I think his um, track record doesn't necessarily say he's someone that takes underachieving teams over the top. He takes bad teams and makes them better. He takes great teams and helps them win, but I don't think he takes a team that's stuck in limbo and pushes them over the top. That's a whole other skill set, and I'm not sure he's the coach to do that. Um, I think their best play is to trade one of those two players, and I think it's going to be really hard to decide for them which player that is. I think Ben Simmons is the better prospect in some ways, but also not in some ways. He's a great defender, great passer, but he needs to be on his own team that can highlight what he's good at and diminish what he's bad at, which is shooting. He doesn't shoot at all from outside the paint. I think he needs to gain more confidence doing that, but until he does, it's almost impossible to play him if you even have one other player that's not a lights-out three-point shooter because there's just nowhere for him to go. I think he has to be the one bringing the ball down the court and then setting up again in kind of the dunker spot within an offense. I think that's the only way that you can play him unless you're just running and gunning transition the entire time, which is maybe what he needs to be successful. Um, Joel Embiid is easier to play uh, a fit for basketball-wise 
obviously you just want him to go down there, bang around in the post and score on anybody. And he physically can do that and is dominant at doing that. But he also showed a lot of why those concerns are there with attitude problems, doesn't stay conditioned, um, doesn't always have what his team needs to take them over the top. He doesn't bring it on a consistent basis and, um, he's just immature. And so even though he has titled himself the process and kind of made himself untradeable to some extent, it's hard to say if you're the Sixers that you have one guy who really, really wants it and really fights for it all the time and Ben Simmons and one guy who is kind of the face of your team but doesn't bring it that you're going to tie yourself to that guy instead. So do you tie yourself to the guy who has um, you know, conditioning issues and doesn't perform under the bright lights all the time and doesn't play the way you want him to play? Or do you tie yourself to the guy who can't shoot at all? So the Sixers are in a really tough spot. I know most teams would give up anything to have a superstar of their caliber on their team, and they have two of them. But they're in such a tough spot with who to go with and does either of them take them over the top or bring them more uh, in terms of like draft capital or or assets in, in, in other players. So um, the Sixers are definitely trending down, even though they have one of the most talented rosters in the NBA. They're overpaying for a team that won't do anything in the playoffs, and that is the worst position you could possibly be in. Um, and then I'm about to wrap this up, but the last two uh, people I wanted to talk about are the stagnant um, players, the people that are not winners or losers, or if they were, they were both to such an extent that it kind of evens out. Um, the first player I want to talk about is Giannis. Um, it definitely is a winner for some aspects. Absolutely dominated um, the Magic in round one and was awarded the MVP and Defensive Player of the Year in the same season, which has only been done like twice. And so definitely had some winning moments there and consistently showed all the fire and competitiveness in the world when he was down there, um, but also showed his limitations. Um, he's the only superstar in the NBA at, in terms of like a top five player that you can game plan out of a game. Like the Heat were specifically built to be able to do this, but if you, you can't have a player that the strategy is just, all right, we build a wall. Don't let him drive and force him to shoot. And it actually works. Um, that both says that the Bucks need to make some moves and get better players around him. They have good big-name players, but players that can also create more offense around him and need to put him in a better position where he's playing um, down low more and catching lobs off of other players and... Um, not in a position where he has to bring the ball up because um, you know, one disadvantage to the fact that he's so big at seven foot is that if he's dribbling and he doesn't isn't able to get into a spin move or if they meet him at the end of that spin move or Euro step, if he's not able to get around them, then he's kind of stuck and they can get underneath his dribble because he's so tall. So I think that they need some more offensive creators on that team um, to take the burden off of him 
and uh, let him play more coast-to-coast and baseline. And he is devastating with the ball in his hands, but he doesn't have to do it every time because that's when teams can game plan for it. That's when they can game plan him out of a game and force him to put up bad shots and make turnovers and his make his teammates win the game instead, and they couldn't do it, and they won't be able to do it unless they get better teammates around him that fit uh, or complement what he's good at and raise what he's bad at by um, you know hiding what he's bad at and uh, being better at it themselves. Um, the other stagnant player and last player I want to talk about today is Kawhi Leonard. Um, I think a lot of people would have him down as a loser for the way that he um, choked in that last game against the uh, against the Nuggets, but and he absolutely did. Had a terrible, terrible last game, but his whole team collapsed that game. I think one bad performance when he was carrying that team offensively every single game down, scoring um, basically at will. I think he did his part and defensively was still just as disruptive and dominant on that end as he always is. Um, I don't think anyone is looking at him in a significantly worse light other than saying, yes, he choked in that big game. And now you can't say necessarily that he is the best player and best closer in the league over LeBron after LeBron put together that performance. But that's more to do with LeBron doing better than it is with Kawhi doing worse. And, um, I mean, you can't say that he's not a closer because he had one terrible game seven when he had um, tons of games over the past two years and with this time in the Spurs where he showed that he absolutely is. He's proven it time and time again, just had a, a really bad um, perfect storm of a bad culture in Los Angeles. His teammates kind of um, wilting. He wilted. Paul George completely disappeared. Um, and that is actually why you have guys, why you have two superstar teams. For obviously, you want them both to be clicking at the same time, but you would hope that if one of them isn't clicking, the other one is, but they both didn't click at the same time. Um, definitely a loss in that respect, but overall in the bubble, he was ridiculous. He was unbelievable, and so he did too much good to say that he is trending down from one bad game. It just happened at the worst possible time, um, but yeah, that's it. That's everybody that I wanted to talk about for players that were impacted by the bubble. Obviously, there are others, um, but I, these are the ones that I wanted to cover today because I think that that is going to be the players um, that are going to be impacting the rest of the league going forward. And so that's who I wanted to talk about for um, how they were impacted by the bubble today and about the NBA Finals. And the next time I come on, I'll probably do some kind of either uh, flashback to um, players or games uh, from when... um, you know, in the 2000s or something like that, or maybe talk about the upcoming free agency uh, and the draft, um, as those are topics I really want to talk about as well. But thank you for listening. Uh, Kind of a longer episode today. Hopefully we get some guests coming on soon and uh, come back soon, uh, hopefully next week for another episode of the 7 Seconds or More podcast. (music) 